my name is Philip Perkon. I'm the president of the Russian Business Society. And on behalf of the London School of Economics and the Russian Business Society, I would like to thank everyone for coming. Let me tell you about the Russian Business Week in general. It's a unique project. It's the second annual conference we have this year. And we're hosting some of the most important speakers from Russia. This week, we'll tackle all issues, all economic and business issues facing Russia today. Um, I will tell you how the lecture will run. The lecture will be around uh, 40 minutes, followed by a Q&A session at the end. There will be a separate Q&A session for the press after this event. So please, uh, for all press members, please can you refrain from asking questions to, uh, until after the event. I will now show a short film, which is an introduction to Russian Railways, and then we'll warmly welcome the President of Russian Railways, Vladimir Yukunin. skills, distinguished managers, engineers and experts working with one of the world's major haulage companies. More than one million personnel work around the clock handling the challenges facing global transport. We are set on advancing the latest of innovative competitive technologies in the haulage business. Each of the staff feels proud for their share of assistance in a business designed to boost Russia's prosperity and economic growth. Russian Railways operates a vast network of railroads which link peoples, countries and continents. We strive for top quality in each of the areas we operate in. Clear-cut strategies and sound decisions guarantee safe and timely transportation of passengers and cargoes. Attracting investment to new technologies 
helps to resolve the gravest of social, political, and economic issues. The lucrative investment provides for the development of the railway industry and incorporates the company into the global transportation system. Russian railways form an important link within the Russian economic system. Railroads guarantee uninterrupted work of industrial enterprises. We deliver vitally important cargoes to the most remote areas across the country. Passenger-friendly rail routes are accessible to millions. Russian Railways has been a passenger service for more than 150 years. We link together cities and countries. We give freedom to people. We carry through the dreams of millions. The one network that joins us all. Russian Railways. President of Russian Railways, Mr. Vladimir Yakunin. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and I would like to apologize for my humble knowledge of English, but uh, it was the decision uh, made previously that I should try to present some notes in English. So excuse me for that, but I suppose you will suffer much more if I talk Russian and you will get uh, some kind of interpretation. First of all, I would like to thank uh, you for this possibility to share with you some of our thoughts and to present the company. And I'm very thankful to Philip, who was the initiator of this meeting. For us, it is very important that we can present to young generation and the professors of this highly reputed school some of our opinions not dealing only with our industry but also to share some of our remarks because we are functional of the work of the economy of Russian Federation as a whole also being a part of global economy whatever is said so with your permission, I will deal with these two natural and obvious occupation of mine. Firstly, of course, I'm here in front of you as the president of the biggest transport company of Russian Federation, employed more than 1,200,000 employees, exploiting more than 80 5.5 thousand kilometers, more than 20,000 locomotives, more than 600 rolling stock, and being spread through eight time zones. 
This is my first and major professional occupation. But because I'm not professional railway master, I came from the other industry. You know, I still trying to conduct and persuade the way of some kind of scientific research. And here, I also would like to present to you the chairman of our research center, Mr. Sulakshin, Dr. Sulakshin, better to say, with whom, together with other researchers, we conduct some research works. There is another third head on my head. I am the president of World Public Forum Dialogue of Civilization, Civilizations, which we started now seven years ago, and which somehow became one of the most effective platform to discuss the nature of dialogue of civilizations and possible conflict of civilizations, or clash of civilizations, as late Professor Huntington, possibly some of you read his book, uh, notified. So um, I start with the first part of my notes, and that will deal with economic crisis, economic sciences, and economical, economic development. Maybe it is too ambitious, you know, to name this part like this, but nevertheless, we are all suffering the crisis as we see it today. And nobody, not any professor, not any politician, can explain what actually the cause of this crisis. What can be the outcome, how to overcome the results of the crisis. So uh, I suppose we can put three questions. Considering the current development of economic sciences, does it prove so difficult to envisage, prevent, and overcome the effects of economic crisis? What is still to be learned? What is not yet accessible for the modern economic sciences? What practical recommendations, if any, could be delivered from the scientific analysis of the course of the current crisis? Those are not simple questions, because for many, many years, researchers, scientists, they were working hard to understand the nature and even more harder to understand the nature of the humanity and human relations. May I note that we are talking about humanitarian sciences. The answer to these questions, they are not simple and they are not obvious. But the origin or origins of the crisis and instability of global and local markets, we should state being explained only post factum. Very rarely it was predicted. Science in its ideal form can provide the mankind 
with the knowledge about the world, we call it cognitive potential of science. And coming out with recommendations for its practical applications. In other words, science plays two social important roles. First, to understand, to cognize outside nature. And second, let's say, to rebuild it for mankind purposes and benefits. We try to, to put in some form of visual possibilities. And you see this starts with reflection. The first man saw, say, you know, the fire, natural fire, till comprehension. And that is uh, cognitive potential of sciences. And then, of course, how the science can be used. So this is practical, transformative potential of sciences. The zone you see here, that is the zone where the nowadays or comparative uh, knowledge of the nature of some events going not to the substance of the event can explain something to some limited conditions. And if the science is trying to make some recommendations to explain what's going on. And if the scientists or scientists, they work in the area where there is no actually proved by the experience theories, you know, the recommendations can be mistaken. And then the results can be quite different to those one predicted. We also can say that uh, in case of some additional influence, the results of the work of scientists can be false. And uh, we in uh, Soviet Union and in Russia we observed this greatly, and whatever contradictional will be the statement, I should say that, uh, to my mind, for example, historical failure of the USSR can be explained, explained of course, maybe not uh, fully, but at least uh, with great deal, can be explained by the fact that uh, the ideology, or better to say, there was used half true and highly ideologized, I'm sorry, ideologized theories which in the Soviet Union were considered as absolutely dogmatic true. But uh, being here during the period of world financial and economic crisis, may I say that the opposite approach of absolutizing interests of the so-called minority is equally erroneous because the dogma of Soviet socialism was that the state works for the benefits of the majority while liberalism stated 
that everyone should and could have his own way and the most valuable thing that is freedom, freedom of enterprise, freedom of behavior, etc. And if we look at the next slide, we see the structure of people in any country. You know, of course, you know, sociologists, they can question this diagram. It can be said that, you know, we should have, you know, this sleeping uh, majority. We can see something else. But to the substance of these remarks, you know, I would like to suggest that we accept this diagram. Five percent of the people, those are active people. Those are ambitious people for whom you know, the freedom of their, you know, going further is the utmost value. While 95% of the people, they easily give up those values instead of stability, comfort, etc. So this is the historical interaction of two powers created by the minority and the majority of the society. The scientific paradigm of uh, liberalism and socialism reflect the incompatible interests of these two basic groups. Therefore, the conflict, the swinging of the historical pendulum from one geopolitical catastrophe can be leading to possibly another catastrophe. And here in this audience, I would like to say that uh, when in the West, the phrase of Mr. Putin about geopolitical catastrophe with the salvation of Soviet Union occurred was interpreted not rightly. He was not sorry that the Soviet Union ceased to exist, but he mentioned that the salvation of this huge country with huge population and bringing the society or parts of the society in the state which many of you could experience yourself, that was, in his opinion, the catastrophe. Not the abolition of the Soviet system. This is not true. So when I am talking about the catastrophe, I am dealing exactly with this understanding. But the question is what we are heading now to. Why the idea of liberalism, for example, in economy are not historically universal? For that we have another slide. You can see this is dynamics of the share of governmental spending in GDP for a number of countries of the world in a historical retrospective. What we know about the major points of liberalism, neoliberalism, the state should withdraw from the economical development, economical planning. That is for the market and free enterprise. If you look at this picture, you will see how the investments, governmental investments, 
were being put into the industry or economy, economies of the different countries. At the far end, you see the right you know, line. That what was done in the current history of Russian Federation. So the Russia appeared to be the only one who was following this you know, liberal theory. Other countries, they were much wiser. You know, when we are talking about the conflict of interests, interaction of two powers, minority and majority, what can be the possible recommendation? How to deal with that? And uh, if you permit me, to my mind, the sustain, uh, sustainable development can be attained by the balancing of the interests of two major groups of the population, majority and minority. And wherefrom the recommendations can occur. We should restrict ourselves from dogmatism, both, you know, Soviet-style socialism and, you know, Western-style neoliberalism. You know, when I was writing these notes, you know, partially it was long before then in the Russian Federation, you know, the governmental structures and the people accepted the knowledge of crisis coming. So, of course, I am using the situation not to be afraid that with words, you know, don't be dogmatic about neoliberalism, stating here in front of you in London School of Economics, I'm not that afraid that uh, uh, somebody will stand up and say, listen, you do not understand anything about the economies because, you know, and then blah, blah, blah. Now it is not like that. And that is the problem, not for Russia, not even for Great Britain. It is the problem of global scale. But who can be the arbitrator to, uh, so to say, to supervise, to oversee this play of two major forces, minority and majority? Don't you think it is possible now to come back and to reconsider the possible role of the state government as the instrument which got mandate from the society. Again, we are talking about this diagram where the liberalism is and where something else. I suggest to look at this slide because it presents my view of the genesis of evolution of uh, crises in the development of states from primitive stage till nowadays sixth stage. What was the power 
what was the source of the power in the primitive age. Who was more powerful? That was the boss. And the major part of the power was used just to share the results of the hunting. It was okay till there were enough animals, there were enough you know, fruits on the trees, but when something happened, possibly the shortage of this food and some other necessary parts to, to keep the life, bring the community to some other phase. Who should get the most valuable part of the earnings? Then the second stage, feudal stage, where the most valuable thing was the land. And because you also well aware about the historical route, I'm not going through all these points, but I would like to come to golden billion age. Of course, you know this term. While in the previous era, there was a conflict of interest of minority and majority in the frame of one society, then in the frames of the national state. Later on, it will go beyond the borders. So-called you know, problems of developing world, Africa, Latin America, Asia, where even kids are dying from the absence of the food or water. While on the other side of the global society, people are developing their, you know, culture of buying, taking, eating, drinking. Where it is goes from? You know, the source, the only one is the earth itself. But again, who is more powerful? Those are the most rich and wealthy. Remember Nobel laureate book, Mr. Stiglitz, who was describing the work of the World Bank and Monetary Fund? He was talking about the highly politicized financial policy of those bodies invented to help those who did. So when we are talking about the interaction of two powers, majority and minority, in the golden billion stage, we see that is the interaction of the powers not in the frame of one border, or one nation. That is the interaction of the global scale. And this is also the fruit of globalization. And to, you know, to feed up this love for consumption, this love to eat, this love to feed yourself with every possible pleasures, need to be supported, need resources to do so.
So this golden billion, golden billion stage, that is the stage where the mankind should have several possible ways. Whether we should understand that the globe is the only place where everyone is living. And it is not out of my mind that somebody is, you know, being, you know, killed in Africa or, you know, dying of the shortage of uh, food in Asia. While, you know, around me everything is just beautiful and perfect. And to understand, to feed up this drive for consumption, we are getting from somebody the very essential things to keep this somebody alive. On our conferences on dialogue of civilization, we are dealing with different aspects of interaction of civilizations. Of course, it is provocative terminology in itself, because we are not following Mr. Huntington descriptions. We are elaborating ourselves on what that is the civilization. There is no strict scientific explanation or term. But we are aware of the fact that to settle the nowadays problems, contemporary world problems, something new should occur. This something new possibly should be the instrument to manage, if you want, or to supervise the effects of this interaction of different powers. I jumped over the uh, fourth stage, but I will tell some words about this. That the stage of Bill, uh, bipolar world stage was very important to understand what we are heading to now. The Soviet alternative made competing West to reconsider state attitudes towards, you know, the needs of majority. Though the Soviet Union itself wasn't the state of majority, though declared like that, but still, there were some provocative samples of better life at that time. So, we got the theory of social state. Again, against the neoliberal theory that the state should withdraw itself from any influence on the social matters of the societies. And this is also very essential to understand that sometimes theories they are saying one thing, but you know, bringing absolutely other things. So we come to this fifth stage and we stay now in this contemporary world and we should understand and we try to understand what happened and what is happening now. I will give you some quotations. The economy of so-called soap bubble type has been formed and it would 
burst sooner or later. If the needle touches such a ball, the destructive explosion will happen. That was written by uh, Professor LaRouche, American professor, alternative possibly some of the sitting here specialists, they know his name, very controversial figure, but he was right to state this fact. And um, further, we live in the world where a certain will, will, in uh, that meaning, you know, the power to, you know, to reach some targets, a certain will plays the main role. The problem is further complicated by the fact that European governments have collectivized and delegates a part of its sovereignty to the United States. So that is the description of the fifth stage. And now, with your permission, I would like to go to another point. You remember, during the session of uh, World Economic Forum in St. Petersburg lately, in June, if I'm not mistaken, of last year, the Minister of Commerce or Secretary of Commerce of the United States of America declared that now we should create some international mechanism to deal with the greediness of private entrepreneurs to deal with the greediness and absence of responsibility of some institutions. That was very important to hear that from the, you know, Secretary of Commerce of the United States of America. So again, that is appeal to create some intergovernmental, international instruments to try to cope with the interaction or fight between two powers, majority and minority of the global scale. On this diagram, we would like to present our opinion that it is the businesses and the governments who are influencing the uh, economical development. The first left part, you know, the second behavior, this is most aggressive, most powerful, active part of the business with high risk and possible high profit. The first one, that is the business with low risk but with low profit. And you know, in business, if somebody worked in business, you know that every entrepreneur decides to himself what kind of model he can use. But you know then, if something going wrong, if something was underestimated, then you know the high profit can turn out to be the high loss. And the wave can occur in the development, economical development, and possibly you know the work of Russian uh, scientists of uh, 1938, his last date, you know, Kondratiev, 
who you know explained the uh, the waves of the development of the economies of global scale. What we also should notice that is that diagram quite controversial diagram, but you know, you know, just pay attention to one fact. We are talking, you know, and this is not our research results. We take we took this from different sources. Approximate value of the global economy comes to be like sixty trillion dollars. Excuse me if somebody say it's fifty five or seventy. For the understanding it doesn't matter. While the mass of monies and surrogates of monies, derivatives, nobody can tell exactly what is the amount, but approximate estimation is like 10 times higher, 600 trillion. And um, we also know that dollar-based economy now doesn't link with anything, you know, like, you know, gold, for example. So, you know, the emission center being placed in the United States of America is controlled by whom? By FRS. FRS. What is FRS? This is private structure. 20 banks. They conduct everything. They place the rules. They know when to, you know, to switch on the printing machine and when to take the money out. So it is not right, to my mind, to, you know, to blame only Americans for the crisis because that was global scale crisis. And it was created globally. But of course, you know, the major proportion of responsibility, and that is the understanding of the uh, world community should be placed on the administration, etc., etc. But I'm not talking about the politics. I'm talking about the influence of the politics, which can create absolutely wrong estimation of what is going on, and which on this basis giving the wrong, you know, prescriptions how to deal with these events. Again, this uh, just the, you know, the slide to support our opinion concerning uh, the necessity of uh, actual monies to develop the economy. As you see, every country should have some amount of the, you know, currency flow, so to say. Excuse me if my English is not that correct, but you, I hope you understand what, what I'm talking about. In Russia, you know, it was the decision to, you know, to sterilize the mass of the monies, which we got from uh, the selling of the natural resources in oil mainly, and you see, where is Russia in comparison with other countries? It is uh, possibly a local problem 
of Russia today, but it is also necessary to just to understand what is going on globally. I said oil. I will show you one other slide. That is the behavior of the price of the crude oil during before the period of crisis, starting with 1990. But we can show you the same kind of diagram if we look a little bit earlier because it very strangely coincides with the behavior of the oil price before the Soviet Union crisis and the you know, demolishing of the Soviet Union. The black line, that is actual industrial demand for the oil. The red one, that is the price. So I guess with some reservations, we can say that the peak of the prices is not coinciding with the actual demand for the oil. Then with what? One can say that is possibility stock game. Possible, but not explaining everything. So that is the slide I promised to show you. You see? The hill, the first peak, collapse of the USSR, and the second trend. Everything very similar. The scale is a little bit different, but after all, after all, you know, many years passed. So again, we can talk about the will, which I mentioned when I quoted Mr. LaRoche, and I just would like you to consider the possibility that is not the free market game on financing, but possibly there is a good deal of intellectual intervention. Now, you know, some particular things concerning Russian financial market and Russian economy. You all know that uh, we have the debt, corporate debt, amounting $500 billion. You see, you know, the diagram showing that since 1999, in the borrowing of the money, the credits given by the Russian banks was rapidly declining. While the borrowings from the Western financial market were rising. And now, when the economy came to the global crisis, many companies, many banks, not only in the West, but in Russia, they faced the problem. Those are very reputable, you know, banks, rather reputable industries, companies with actual actives, very important, raw materials, oil, gas, because of the, this catastrophic decline on the financial market, who 
will be the owner of the actual assets afterwards. This is also the next question we would like to draw attention to. You know, because of the timing, I should skip several points. And uh, again, to come to very close to our heart question, who should be the arbitrator? Who should be the demiurge who can bring the positive result of the interaction of two powers, majority and minorities? To our mind, that is not the question of terrorism liberalism, neoliberalism, communism, but that is the question how to solve this uh, the task for optimal management. And from this angle, we consider the possibility of the development of the state, the governments, and international organizations to govern some uh, major problems of nowadays economies. So I'm finishing with this very wiki land of trying to present some of our remarks on the matter of world economic crisis. And I would like to present very shortly my second occupation, which is the first one. And that is the part to answer the title of these notes. Russian railways as the locomotive of Russian economy. You know, here you can see the comparison of different uh, railway companies in the world, and you easily can see that uh, we are the second by the lens. We are the first by the lens of electrified uh, uh, railways, and we are the biggest transport company possibly not only in Russia but in the world which will not bring us a lot of money because of that but still we should understand the social importance of the company as it is today during the interview with some reporters the question were asked concerning the policy during the crisis whether it is necessary to invest into the uh, railways or infrastructure or not. Here I see a very uh, wise lady, the representative of EBRD. She could uh, support me here. We always consider that investment into infrastructure will not bring the rise, catastrophic rise of inflation in the country. It will support the policy of economic development inside the country and it is necessary to create new jobs which is very essential, or what is very essential, especially during the crisis period of time. To prove that uh, we are not talking, only talking about science and uh, researchers, but also can do something you know, practical, this slide shows that uh, uh, after approximately five years after creation of a joint stock company, you remember it was ministry, and then it was transformed into joint stock company. So trust me, it wasn't easy period. 
it is not easy now, but still, you see, uh, you know, all the parameters of our budget and, uh, you know, the parameters uh, which permit to check the work of the management of the company, they are quite impressive. Specifically, I would like to draw your attention to the last one, labor productivity. It raised 48%, unprecedented in any Russian uh, industrial uh, enterprises. It is also very important to know that uh, in Russia, this transport component is very essential. While, say, in, uh, where? in Germany, for example, you know, they carry only 7% of the cargoes. In Russia, we carry 40% of the cargo. If exclude the pipeline transport, then we are carrying 80% of the cargo and 40% of the people, passengers. That is to prove that the work stability of Russian railways is very essential, you know, to deal not only with the crisis effects, but it is essential from the substance of railway and the nature of railway, the importance of railways in the Russian Federation. And uh, some more remarks. In 1949, Soviet Union, together with the Western countries, created the organization named UIC, International Union of Railways. It was, excuse me, it was made before the war, 36. But in 1949, Soviet Union dropped its participants in this organization due to some, you know, demand uh, to, to, pay, to pay money, you know, which is mandatory after the World War II. And Russians were, you know, assaulted, so they just closed the door behind them and went off. Since then, two systems, Western railway system and the Soviet Union system or six countries system developed separately. And today it is impossible. Absolutely no, not separately, different ways, not in crossways. <coughs> and today if just imagine we have all necessary laws permitting you know the six countries rolling stock to go along the railway system infrastructure in Western countries. Impossible. Everything is different. Not only the gauge, but even the standards are different. The weight of the cargo, which is permitted on the infrastructure, is different. Communication system, different. Everything is different. So we restore our participation last year, again, to try to bring closer the railway systems in these countries and Russia. Why? Mr. Soros, in late, in his last uh, article published in uh, Russian newspaper, Vedomosti, proclaimed the geopolitical struggle to be, or not to be, started 
by modern Russia. And he concluded that Russians always trying to make everything possible just to cross the line of the United States of America. So with this we are proving that we are not crossing the line with every, anybody. I have Trans-Siberian. That is more than 8,000 uh, kilometers line coming to Belarusia, Ukraine. And we suggested a very interesting to my mind, very interesting project. A wide gauge line starting from Moscow through Ukraine through Slovakia to Vienna. Why? Because today all the economies, they are fighting to lessen the cost. While you know by deep sea operators, you can get your commodities in a container in 40 days. Using Trans-Siberia, you can get the same in the center of Europe in 14 days. Okay, let it be 20 days. Two times, two times, two times faster. Why, why I said let it be 20 days? Because now we have the program and we should reach these results in 2011. We would like to, you know, to cover the distance between Vladivostok and, you know, the border of EU for seven days. And we would like to introduce this product as international product. We have support on the part of Austrian government and Austrian railways. We have support on the Prime, Ministers, uh, Prime Minister of Slovakia. We have support of Italians. We have support of Germans. Of course, we have support of Ukrainians and Russians. You know, we should find, we should find not what distinguishes us from each other, but to find the mutual targets and then with this understanding of the mutual targets we can create something new and possibly you, the young people, can create new world which will be more balanced, more truthful and fair. With this I would like to finish my remarks. Excuse me, I skipped part of this, uh, you know, notes but, you know, I suppose it is much more than enough. Thank you very much for your attention. And let's now start the questions and answers session. May I stress that you don't deliver a lecture, but uh, rather ask a question. Thank you. And uh, please, all the press, keep your questions towards the end, please, after this official Q&A session. Thank you. Finally found the place to meet. I am from St. Petersburg, he is from St. Petersburg. Yeah. He is questioning me in London. Beautiful. So, nevertheless, we, we hope you will visit with a similar lecture at European University and we will ask you questions, but several questions from our students. And one of them is, as you mentioned, you are actively involved in 
uh, this uh, forum, which is a very important forum on dialogue of civilizations. And um, especially, um, so you are basically not leading just a locomotive of um, Russian economy, but also trying to, to establish dialogue between different cultures. And the question is about um, not multilateral dialogue, but bilateral dialogue between uh, Russian Orthodox Church and uh, Catholic Church. What do you think? What kind of perspectives uh, are uh, for development? You know, closer cooperation now, and what sh uh, steps should be made in this direction? Because I am asking also on behalf of our trustee, who is uh, Prince Yurevsky, who is grand grandson of Alexander II, and he is very actively involved in this project. Another question is about um, um, in the opening ceremony uh, of the Dialogue Civilization Forum, you you referred to the British proverb about uh, changing uh, when time change, values remain the same. So the question is about uh, what do you see perspectives for philanthropy projects among Russian companies during financial crisis? Because, for example, in recent months we were trying to raise money for the project we will explore uh, Baikal Amur, Amur Railway uh, during Soviet times and we will try to basically to, to make historical sociological study of Russian, uh, of Soviet values during that time. So basically, are the values changing or with the time or they will Questions still still clear, remain? Uh, and the last question is about <laughs> uh, let's about Krasnoyarsk region because I know Krasnoyarsk region because you uh, RGD or Russian Railways they are very closely involved in Krasnoyarsk region, it's a very successful story. So basically, uh, you're involved not only in basically your main business activity, but also in a uh, social infrastructure and medical, establishing medical infrastructure and uh, job market influenced highly by Russian railways. So uh, can you explain what is the main reason on, uh, de on development of... Uh, Thank you. Uh, of relations on such successful story, whether it's will of local government or governor, or it's just a modern way of management of the company. I'm terribly sorry to yeah. interrupt you, but I think it's quite enough. Thank you. For future, one question only, please. At least, at least you should be happy that uh, the person who interrupted you, he is the head of a very reputable uh, newspaper, Commerçant, you know. So possibly he would like to hear this from you in Russian. Possibly, you know, some problems with English, you know. <laughs> um, are you ready to hear me for another one hour? <laughs> okay. In every joke, there is a partially a joke. But because uh, you ask on behalf of the group of students, I will try to make myself very short, but uh, some of your questions they are so important and so difficult that it needs at least some explanation. You know, I'm not a churchman. In terms of I'm not a bishop, I'm not, you know, even the father. So I have no right to explain the things from this point of view. I can explain my feeling because I work very closely with different confessions in Russia because, you know, I also a chairman of the supervision, uh, supervising board of uh, uh, the foundation of Andrew the First Call. 
So we are dealing with uh, these problems very uh, seriously and very often. You, in Russia, I guess being Russian, you know that even in St. Petersburg, the first very impressive mosque, you know, uh, Muslim mosque, was created, and that was the gift to the Russian Tsar. Nowadays in Russia, we have, uh, not in Russia, in St. Petersburg, we have Azerbaijanian population of more than 800,000. It is great proportion. Why I'm talking about St. Petersburg? Because you are from St. Petersburg. Equally, you know, now the Catholic Church is very active, much more active than during the Soviet period of time. But the problems between Orthodox Church and Catholic Church, both are Christian churches, occurs on the ground of historically accepted rules of behavior. For example, you know, the Archbishop or even Patriarch will never permit himself to go to the region of another patriarch of Archbishop without invitation. It's like in the States, among the States. No president will go to another country without official invitation. And you know, there is also a very tricky field of competition of the religions. You know, while everyone is saying that everyone should have his own understanding of the God, of the Lord, should himself to choose the proper religion, like Prince Vladimir in the uh, ancient time of uh, Russia, you know, the fight for the soils and heads of the people is still there. And because of that, some frictions from time to time occurs. They are not aggressive frictions. They are motivated frictions, if you know. And for the Russia, as the state where more than 170 nations living together, with all this historical you know, way of development, it is very important that we never had any religious clashes inside Russia. So the answer is, you know, I cannot explain why, but I'm just trying to deliver to you my understanding of what can be possible, why. Second question about helping the people in need. You know, it is fascinating for two last years a lot of special charity funds occurred in Russia. While at the beginning of Perestroika, those charity funds, they mainly were the instrument to get money and to get them out of Russia, nowadays that is proper charity funds. And I can tell you about Russian railways. Together with this foundation of Henry I call, we created a special charity fund, Spread the Wind, Rasprav Krilya, to help those kids who are found themselves in a very, or finding themselves in a very difficult position, without parents, orphans, for example, or, you know, parents neglected them, something like that. You know, 
uh, we got one charity concert and after the charity concert from the public sitting in the hall of course we have chosen the participants but it was also spread just tickets were spread around for one charity uh, concert we got more than 2.5 million rubles from the companies from the private people etc so I guess that that reflects the maturity of the society but I can share with you some other note you know I worked at the United States I came there a young man from the Soviet Union educated in the Soviet Union educated to be polite with the elderly so it was in subway train when the elderly black woman enter the wagon. So what did this young diplomat from Soviet Union did? He stood up and suggested the lady to sit. She nearly fainted. Fainted. Because it's not, you know, common in the West. But we were trained like this. We were, you know, educated like this. So I suppose the life educated our society to be helpful and to see if you can help somebody, you should do that. By the way, again, in New York City, I uh, noted that uh, the people who were giving some change to those who appealed for these monies were nearly the same level people like those who were uh, appealing for charity. Never saw any person in Thai giving money to anybody. Social infrastructure. Listen, 1,200,000 personnel. In some villages, there is nothing but the station. So we need to create, we needed to create this social sphere. We have second biggest healthcare system. We still have some kindergartens because, you know, in those places, there is no any other kindergarten. We have some special uh, uh, schools with full pension because, you know, uh, the parents are working on railways. They are leaving, uh, you know, the kids. And so not to neglect the uh, kids, they are living on full, uh, uh, in f fully in these schools and dormitories. So we need to have it. And, uh, of course, we are trying to Get rid, get rid of uh, some unnecessary elements of the social infrastructure because it is a great burden on the economy of the company. But nevertheless, we have it. And, you know, what I am proud of, for example, we have 24 kids' railways, so-called small railways. And you should see the eyes of my comrades from other railways from other countries when they see this small infrastructure for kids mainly those kids from not welfare families because we provide them with the special wares, we provide them with some meal and they are coming you know several hours 
just to get to this railway station because they are doing something something special, something interesting. And this is not the game. That is our attitude towards the manipulating of the personnel uh, policy in the company because many of these kids, they are coming to our colleges, to our universities, and they are returning back to the railways. Thank you. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Good morning. <laughs> okay, can you give this microphone, may I say, to this sleeping, sleeping beauty, you know? I just have one question. It's quick. Uh, as far as I know, in Europe, there exist special discounts and special tariffs for young people and students traveling on the railroad from town to town. Uh, do we have something like this in Russia, or are you pl planning to introduce special schemes for, for youths and students? Right. Uh, for five years, the board of directors and the management of the company was discussing this matter with our government. On our own, we decided to keep the privileges of elderly and uh, young people and every year we are bearing the loss of approximately 2 billion rubles because we sustained this you know, 50% uh, discount on the tickets for young and school, uh, for young people, students, and the schoolboys. This year, uh, we had a special session of the government uh, during which I presented the case directly to the Prime Minister, Mr. Putin, and it was decision of the government that uh, starting February, the company should be reimbursed with these losses because it is not social policy of the company. That should be the social policy of the state. So the answer is positive. Thank you. Mr. Ikunin, what's your view on creation of private transportation companies such as Severstal Trans, Prof Trans, etc., etc., etc.? Is it good for Russia, or is it only spread of necessary resources and something that will later create confusion, collisions, etc.? Would you rather have state or mostly state-controlled company, or do you like private company? You are not working for the Russian Ministry of Transport, I guess? Now I work for one of the Evras group companies. Aha. So, you see how wise I am. <laughs> you know, uh, that is a constant discussion whether the market of uh, railway cargo transportation should be fully privatized or, you know, partially privatized. Is it good that we have these private operating companies with the rolling stock or it is bad, specifically during this period of crisis when the private companies, they are full in debt and, they, you know, they cannot withstand these debts, what will occur? You know, that is the policy of the management of the board of directors. We consider it is necessary to have private companies, but, you know, when the whole uh, process of reformation of railways occurred in Russia, 
as usual, you know, those who were, you know, printing and accepting the laws, they sometimes were trying to translate, say, from German or English or what other language, some quotations of the law. So we got something you never find anywhere in the world, operators. Operators, that is private companies who have ownership of some stock and who provide the stock for the cargo owner and cargo owner signed a special agreement and this is public agreement with Russian railways to deliver this cargo from one place to another place. So, you know, in the United States of America, for example, that is the role of the leasing companies. They have the stock and they provide the stock when it is in need. So, you know, I suppose some kind of changes in our uh, laws should occur, but, you know, it is inevitable that this particular service should be the service of private companies. And as you know, we now uh, explained that we are going to create the second uh, cargo company, and the Russian Railways company will get rid of any rolling stock, but necessary for its housing, uh, you know, necessities. So that is the answer. Thank you. I have one question from upstairs. The gentleman with the tie. And the lady next, because it is not proper thing, you know. Or maybe lady first then. Maybe then lady first. Yep. Thank you very much. That's very courteous. Um, you may be aware that there's a current dispute with Transport for London about ticket machines. And I wanted to ask you, with such a large staff, first of all, what was your experience of ticket machines and how they, how they operate? And second, if you had thought of putting in for a franchise for one of the British rail rail services. Okay. You know, as far as uh, ticket printing machine, we experienced this uh, during the Soviet era. Unfortunately, afterwards, uh, because of some uh, problems with the, the equipment, we neglected this, and nowadays we came back to uh, the necessity of uh, installing these ticket machineries you know, to provide uh, more comfort uh, facilities for the passengers to buy tickets. So uh, we already placed several of these automotive machines uh, in Moscow, and it is only due to the fact that uh, we do not have industry to produce these machines that we cannot extend it very fast. Uh, and to buy it from abroad, it is too expensive at this time precisely. Uh, that is uh, the answer for this. And uh, the second, excuse me. Whether you'd considered oh, uh, yeah, bidding franchising. for a franchise. Yeah. Uh, two years ago, we started a program to change the logo of the company. And that is also because we are now creating different companies around railways I mean the company, Russian Railways Company. And we would like to have the same logo through all the companies we have. 
that is kind of, uh, of course, maybe not the, exactly the franchising which you are uh, referring to, but at least that is the way we are looking at this uh, aspect. Thank you. Uh, Vladimir Ivanovich, uh, given the current financial situation in Russia when the budget of Russian Federation is, is actually going to decrease next year, or when the oil prices are kept quite low, and given that Russia is the only owner of Russian railways, what do you think will happen to the investment program and investment budget of Russian railroads for the next couple of years? And how difficult is it to reach agreement with the ministries for economic development and the ministries for transport, which are, as far as I know, responsible for the investment budget? It so happened that uh, due to this research which I referred to, we were one of the first to understand the necessity to be prepared for the coming crisis. As we were the first to present to the government the long-term plan for development of Russian railways, we were the first to present to the government consideration our budget and our investment budget. So we have two scenarios, as usual, you know that. The pessimistic and optimistic. The pessimistic, everyone is talking about necessity to support the railways, and they are not giving a penny. So we confined ourselves to the sum of approximately 260 5 billion rubles investment program, which is roughly 50% less than the last year. And optimistic when those statements concerning the necessity to support the infrastructure company will uh, finish with some substantial amount of the monies to be given to the share capital of the company. Then we have like more than 100 billion more. So now, before the decision of the government, we are working uh, with the scenario of pessimistic view. I suppose possibly in two weeks we will have the final decision on the part of the government and then we will see where we are. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Yakurin. Uh, question in your capacity as the head of the Russian Railways. You've been answering very detailed questions. Uh, as somebody who's gone through the two generations from the Soviet area into the next one, how have you effected change? Is it been transformational or is it been incremental? And on the subject of transparency, what do you think of what President Obama has just done, 730 trillion or billion, and he's put it on a website? so that people can actually see what it has been spent on and where it's going. How do you maintain transparency within the Russian railways? Since um, <clears throat> we became the management of the company and I became the president of the company, our major task was to create a special IT system to have the possibility to create this transparency. Because previously, look, eight time zones. What happened there in Vladivostok, 
I can check so in 20 days, plus, you know, some bureaucracy, two months. Can I react? Huh? Of course not. So now with these IT technologies and the uh, models we uh, created, we have full transparency of our expenditures. It was a little bit more difficult to get this with the earnings. And now we are finalizing the program. We will have the same. So the answer to your question is, of course, you know, it is a very conservative system. And of course, still, there are a lot, a lot of lacoon, if you know what I mean, lacoons, where the money can disappear. But we see they are disappearing even globally. But it is our intention and it is our policy to have everything, you know, transparent, clear, and, you know, on that we are working constantly. It took us three years to get to this point, but it is not the finish yet. So we will continue. Thank you.